welcome to the podcast here to inspire and help you live smarter. Learn from successful Kiwi professionals, wisdom, practical tips, and stories. My name is Kathan, your host for the Live Smarter podcast. Now, it's quite special, that culture, to be able to bring everyone along the journey and for them to feel a part of it, especially as well. And often culture is something that makes or breaks a workplace. And so how would you describe the culture of ICLaw now? Well, I mean, we've got a growth, we've got a growth strategy, we've got a performance culture. These guys are reminded of their, you know, their KPIs and expectations. But so too is anyone who's on a successful journey because you, you need to know whether you're doing it or not. And the way to do that is to test yourself against market. We've taken the time to talk to the team about what it's going to take, what expectations we've set upon ourselves and what expectations that then sets for them. And I don't see anyone shaking their head when we talk about it. There's a huge amount of enthusiasm around what we're doing. I still think empathy is a big part of our culture. Uh, we're empathetic about what we're asking of them and they're empathetic about what we as business owners and as lawyers want to roll out and achieve in our careers. And uh, the dialogue's open. And there's no silly questions or silly observations. And in fact, the way an engine and a car runs is that you put oil in it and that make, makes all the cogs and things like that run smoothly against one another. And in our system, the oil is feedback and they need to be vulnerable to hearing and giving feedback and we need to be vulnerable to hearing and giving feedback because otherwise we won't actually know what pressures or stressors might be going on. It's all still it's still empathy, right? That's what that is. The willingness to be caring enough to have a difficult conversation with someone is all about empathy and that's what we're relying on the team doing with each other and with us. So what were the main sources of inspiration in creating that culture where high performers thrive? I'd love to say that it was all me, because what a cool answer that would be. But we drew influence from other industries. We had a, a we were lucky to be able to afford a business coach mm. relatively early on, and even that decision was a big one because it was a cost that we could little afford. But we also knew that in order to be a successful law firm, we probably needed to learn what success looks like in other industries. And we were loath to go around and chat to lots and lots of business leaders to divine that the best place to go to was somebody who's coached successful practices and law firms and, and businesses. So we employed Steve Connell, who I've talked about before, and he introduced us to lots of reading. And he talked a lot about the life cycle of a business and some of the things that we would feel when we were being more successful. Mm. And then post that what we would start to feel as the business grew and the frustrations that that we would felt would feel. And that was useful because it allowed us to, to gauge where we were on his version of the business life cycle. Mm. And he talked about the fact that we would probably feel very frustrated as the business grew because there'd be all these other things going on which would take us away from the things we love to do. And he used examples of sports teams. He talked about the All Blacks and he talked about the Japanese rugby team and, and the Irish teams and the Australians. And so they were really useful analogies. So these are really high performance 
teams doing really cool things mm. and they all struggle with no matter what their deliverable is, whether it's kicking a ball or winning a World Cup or producing legal advice, they all struggle with the same sorts of things because they're run by by people and led by people. And we took a lot from him and we observed that if you give a group of people context and you tell them about what it is that you're trying to achieve and you explain to them what the tasks that they're asked to complete do in terms of achieving that goal, they're far more focused on it. So we would say uh, clients are great, but we love our staff more. And we love our staff more because if we put energy and effort into those guys, they'll perform well and then they'll deliver really great outcomes to our clients. But if we just focus on our clients, then we'll deliver great outcomes to them, no doubt. But we won't be able to deliver the same outcomes to more and more clients unless we put our energy into our staff, into our team. Mm. And so what we observed is you give them the context, you give them the tools, you give them an understanding of how the, those two things intersect, and then you don't micromanage them. You just let them get on with it. And obviously it's the law, so you need to check their work. But we weren't sitting in every single client meeting past a certain level of experience. We were allowing them to draft their own letters of engagement. We were allowing them to come up with the solutions they felt were going to deliver the outcomes to the client and then come to us to check it with, rather than asking us what we thought. And that's driven a great performance culture. Are there any particular stories or moments you've noticed in the business where you have met people where they're at, like you've been talking about, where you go and encourage that performance culture in a way that's a bit more tangible? Yeah, sure. I remember one key meeting that we ran and morale was a wee bit low. This wasn't that long ago, actually. And it was low because the market had an impact on the amount of work that the team were able to do. And I've been able to, chatting with friends in the law and in other service providers, to divine that this is symptomatic of the market rather than anything we were or were not doing. But morale was a bit low as a consequence of it. And the other thing was low was profit because if there's not as many top-line sales, then that has an impact. But as a group of leaders, we had decided that we were okay with that for a season and that we were young enough and our personal situations were such that we didn't need for this business to chuck tons and tons of cash our way. That we would just take this year as a learning year and and move on with with a different strategy going forward. And the other piece that I think had contributed to all of that context was we had this group of the team at associate level who had gone off to have babies, which was really cool. And when when they came to us one by one to tell us their plans and what they were up to, and I think by the fourth person we were like, you must be joking. <laughs> 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 this is April Fool's or something like that, isn't it? Something on the Hamilton water. Something right? going on. <laughs> but sometimes in a season it's not about winning or losing, it's just about not losing. Mm. And we sat as a group in October last year and we said, this is just a year not to lose. This isn't a year to win. This is just a year not to lose. And how are we going to go about doing that? But take the pressure off us as leaders, take the pressure off our team and just give everyone a a breather. It's a real challenge to come back to the work environment as a new mum. We live and breathe empathy. And so we just say, look, this is just one of those moments. But that's all well and good, us making that decision right, and being okay with it. But these aren't stupid people, right? They can see that we've got targets that we're not hitting and they can imagine what implications there might be. So we just sat them all in a room and we were just honest with them. We said, yeah, there has been a gap. 
And we filled that gap. We referenced a book by Simon Sinek called Leaders Eat Last. And there's a sequence in that where he, uh, he describes a combat situation where there's a group of troops on the ground. And he's, he does it brilliantly, both in terms of the way he's written it, but also if you listen to the audio book, he just draws you into the story of this group of troops in the cold of Afghanistan moving through this particularly challenging piece of ground and above them is a couple of warthogs, which is a particular type of plane. I'm not really much of a um, military enthusiast, but anyway, an old sort of donkey of a plane up keeping watch and it's a cloudy night and there's just this sort of tension in the air because it's a particularly tense time. And what ends up happening is that the pilot of one of the warthogs, who's the overseer of the whole thing, so he's playing a role of leader. He's up top, he's analysing data, he's keeping watch, dips beneath the clouds for a look, and as he's coming down, he hears troops in contact from his guys, and and he realises that it's getting real down there and that people are under threat. And he makes a split-second decision to to keep diving and help. And he, the story goes, you need to read it really. The story goes that he he shoots as, as accurately as he possibly can, but he's only got a short space of time before he needs to pull up and out because he would hit the cliffs otherwise. And you can imagine it being quite an emotional thing to hear. There was a few people with big swallows in, our, in the room in our offices that day imagining what sacrifice this person was willing to make for his troops. And the story goes that the troops all came out and... I suspect the other side of the battle probably weren't quite so lucky, which is obviously very sad. But but the American troops, at least, were, were fine. So we told this story, and and we said, look, we're not in we're not in conflict. I mean, it's silly to draw that analogy in some regards, but what you need to understand as a team is that we've been up top, keeping watch, making sure that you guys don't suffer losses as a consequence of what's going on. These things are outside of our control, and we've eaten last. We've sacrificed profit. To, to get us to a point where we have this ecosystem which is now fit and ready to just grow and grow. And we've made that sacrifice because we've wanted to keep you guys all together so that we can take on the world. And now it's your turn. So you now understand what has been going on. You're smart enough to work out something was going on. We've told you now what's going on. It's your turn. And so what we're going to ask of you is to dig deep yourselves and deliver outcomes to each other and to the firm so that we can use all of this wonderful momentum and this huge platform that we've built to grow. Mm. And it was a cool, it was a cool feeling in the room. And it's we the guys now joke about the warthogs, the guys up in the warthogs. Think <laughs> <laughs> me, Asher and Sam. And I guess they're not real sacrifices in the same sense as those guys were making, right? It's not our lives on the line. But without profit in a business, there's stuff you can't do. You can't service debt. You can't take the team to Waikiki Island for a Christmas party. <laughs> you can't, there's things. They all got it. And we had the opportunity to not tell them and to imagine that they're naive enough just to roll on with it. But we thought it was valuable for them to appreciate that we were just super excited about what we can now achieve and the reasons why we can now achieve it. It allowed them context. We, After emerging with Mount Lawyers, we bought another practice at Waihe. So we settled that in April. And without context, they might have thought, why the hell are they doing that? <laughs> we just did one merger. Why are we doing another one? And what's going on? Or they might think, gosh, it's really busy all of a sudden. What's going on? Because it did. It changed overnight. Those two practices, those two mergers, those two acquisitions changed the nature of the firm entirely. You went from 
being serviced and fed by Waikato families and Waikato businesses to suddenly having the Bay of Plenty shoveling work into the system. So it did change. We used a different analogy there. We talked about Usain Bolt and we said, it's kind of like you guys are Usain Bolt and we've said, hey, take six months off, eat as many pies as you like, drink as much beer as you can possibly drink and just take the six months to to get fat and lazy. And, and then to say to him, hey man, we need you to run the 100 metres in under nine seconds. Do you mind? <laughs> <laughs> and we said, and he would never be able to do it. If even the fastest, most athletic runner in the world is not going to pull a hammy. <laughs> <laughs> He's definitely going to be sore after his first run. And so we're not going to expect that of you. We're going to build you up as best we can, but make no bones about it. We're sprinting and this is going to be huge amounts of fun. Mm. Mm. Oh, thank you for, yeah showing us a bit under the hood, I guess, in a way of that vulnerability. Because you've been talking about including the culture and getting people on board, but I think it actively shows it a bit more than just the, hey, <laughs> we're doing stuff, we look after them. <laughs> yeah. Things like that. Yeah, it's not, just, it's not just something we've written down. We genuinely care about our team. I'm so grateful for the wisdom our guests share. On this show, we bring you the memorable moments from our long-form conversations on the Story Hub podcast so you can have a more successful life and career. Check out the full conversation linked in the description.